Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work to make Christ known among the nations, go to traincpe.org. Or to discover more about this radio ministry and our fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Today, from 2 Kings 7, we consider lessons learned from the skeptical officer whose words pushed back against a king who was turning to God. It did not go well for him. He was trampled in the gate by those rushing to the rescue God had provided. His punishment is repeated twice at the end of the story. Apparently, God wants us to learn from his example, so let's give heed. Do not discourage anyone from repentance and faith in God. How would you do that? How might you discourage a person who is being moved by the Spirit of God to turn to him and believe in him? How might you discourage them from that repentance? That's the warning. Actually, he is being made an example to us. Because he, at the time in which the king is beginning to moderate his attitude and turn towards God, he tries to draw the king back into a position of, or re-fortifying his position of resisting God and not believing in God and not trusting in God and not turning to God, and it's him that's judged. But how might a person, how might a person discourage individuals from repentance? And I'm going to suggest three for you, and I think there's more than this, but here's the first one, and it's this. You may do this by giving an individual a false hope in their own resources or in their own goodness. That is, you discourage repentance and faith by promoting a person's faith in themselves. That's one of the ways you can keep a person from repentance. Just this week, a member of my fellowship pointed out a quote that they had captured from a pastor of a growing church in our community that's ministering largely to young people in the community. And here's the quote, and by the way, I want, you, I want to give this quote, I'm going to give you another quote after this, and don't anybody say amen. I want you to be wise enough to know that this is not something you should be saying. All right, we're going to be critiquing it here for a moment. Here's the quote from this pastor. Unworthiness is a lie. Unworthiness wants to say that you do not deserve God's grace, God's blessing, God's spirit. We've all heard it. It's absolutely a lie from the pit of hell. That's the quote from the pastor. What I want to say is this pastor is in danger. If he truly believes what he's saying, then he is leading people into the pit of judgment by what he's teaching. As we've already learned, repentance comes when you recognize that God's judgment is against you. If you fail to recognize and acknowledge this judgment, you never come to the place of repentance and you'll never come to the place of deliverance. And if you tell people that grace is something that they deserve and that they're worthy of, you actually deny grace altogether. You deny it altogether. Another Christian leader who I know personally, who lives in another country, and is the director and developer of all the personnel for his denomination, recently posted an article on his own page that he wanted and he wanted to encourage people to read that he thought was a good article that would change people's attitudes towards the sinfulness of mankind. And he thought this was something he would commend. And and in it, he actually lifted a quote from this article and he posted it and then invited everybody to go on and read it. I did read the article altogether and it was awful. It was heretical in every way that you can imagine. And if you'd like, I could share it with you at some point in time. And it was stunning to me that this individual was the one who posted it. And, and, And in my mind, I remembered that I had 
work with this individual 25 years ago, and I couldn't understand why we weren't gaining traction through his organization, getting more people into the different countries to present the gospel. And, well, when I read this quote, I understand maybe why it was. But here's the part that he lifted out that he wanted people to read to see that it would commend to individuals, and it's this. What if Jesus' sacrifice on the cross takes care of the shame and self-sabotaging narratives that prevent us from seeing our true condition as God's precious, loved children rather than being an eraser to wipe away our innate, irredeemable wickedness so that God can tolerate us in heaven? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If all that Jesus did, he did, did simply to show us that we have to stop our stinky thinking about ourselves and learn that we're really worthy of God's salvation and the blood that he shed and he died, we deserved it. He should have done it for us because we're those kinds of people. And that's the lesson he's telling us is the great lesson of the cross. Sorry, I get a little emotional when I read it. There's something wrong with that idea, entirely wrong with that idea. Repentance follows recognition of judgment. And when you tell a person that they are worthy of grace, there is no such thing as grace. When you communicate to people that they are not deserving of judgment, you restrain them from coming to that repentance that takes hold of God's deliverance. A gospel of you're a good person who needs to think better of yourself will keep people from surrendering to the gospel that was preached by Paul. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. In verse 14, by the way, just prior to that, Paul reveals that this message that Christ died for sinners is an expression of the exceedingly abundant grace of the Lord. The grace of the Lord is that he died for me in my sin. Grace says Christ has died for unworthy sinners who are worthy only of God's judgment. If you tell a person that they deserve God's grace, they deserve God's salvation, or that they can merit it by any of their actions or by merely existing as they are, that they're somehow intrinsically holy in themselves, you keep them from the true repentance that brings men to God's great deliverance for the chief of sinners. The gospel of grace is that God has given us what we do not deserve. We're worthy of his unending judgment. And yet he offers sinners as us a savior. There's no approach to God for life and forgiveness, but to those who understand that they're deserving of this sentence of death and yet have been found by the savior and loved by him who died in their place. Again, you discourage a person from true repentance by denying that that person deserves judgment and instead teaching them that they deserve or can earn a positive future for themselves by something they measure and find in themselves alone. Here's another way that you can discourage repentance. You can discourage repentance by telling a person that they're beyond the mercy and grace of God, that they're beyond her hope, that because of what they've done or because of who they are, there's no hope for them. And this is just actually another expression of the last point we just discussed. It's the idea that somehow there's something in you that provokes or brings about God's mercy and God's grace and so for one person, you say, God's merciful and gracious because you deserve it. And the other place is say, you'll never experience mercy or grace because you don't deserve it. And you're telling the person that the origin or place from which mercy and grace rises up to be experienced and laid hold of is in themselves, and it's a lie. It's not true. Mercy and grace 
are founded in the heart of God himself. Because God is a God who's full of mercy. And God is a God who is full of grace. And he will deliver anyone who turns in repentance to him with a truly broken and contrite heart. For it is in his heart to save. And it is his impulses to have mercy and grace upon those who are drawn in and turn to him and who he calls. It doesn't rise from anything in yourself. Romans 6.23 teaches us that. It's very simple. It says the wages of sin is death. That is what you earn, what you work for, what you have gained by your actions and by your activity and by who you are is just death. But the gift of God, the gracious gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To suggest that a person can gain or forfeit any chance at salvation by what they have produced or what they failed to produce is to discourage them from the repentance that God calls for. There is nothing that you can do to earn salvation and there is nothing that you have done that will keep you from God's salvation if you'll but repent and believe in His Son. Repentance is simply turning from everything in yourself and in this world and turning to the Savior Jesus Christ who offers you His grace in your place to pay the wages of your sins. Here's the other way that you can discourage a person from repentance. You can restrain a person from repentance by suggesting that God is limited in his interest or ability to save anyone who turns in repentance to him. You can restrain it by saying, look, the limitation is not in you, it's actually in God. Both of them are untrue. Both of them are lies. That's actually what's going on in this lesson that we're learning. This is what this officer is suggesting. God doesn't have it in him. He doesn't have the ability. It's too late. He can't reach you and touch us. And maybe he said this as a last effort to secure his own sense of dignity. He knows that he's coming down. He knows that he's going to starve to death and be destroyed. But at least he can retain a sense of his own self and his own superiority even while suffering by looking down condescendingly upon any suggestion that God had the power to deliver them at that moment. Even if God made windows in heaven, could this thing be? Ah! What is he suggesting? At the very moment at which the king is turning towards God, he's saying, I think, something like this. Just curse God and die with your dignity. Don't give to the, into the promises of pie in the sky by and by. Don't be a fool. Rest in yourself and curse him to the very end. And by the way, it is a spirit. It's the spirit of the unrepentant. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll see judgments that come upon people, waves of judgment. And at the end of the judgment, you would think they would repent. They would recognize we're being judged. But instead, we read that they curse God just before the final judgment is executed upon them. It's arrogance and it's pride. and It's a condescending attitude that thinks that I'll triumph over God if it, even if it's I don't yield to him at the last moment. However, for whatever reason that you might be tempted to do it, never dissuade a person who is being drawn into repentance towards God to never dissuade that person from repentance. Maybe you just want their company with your own sins. Maybe you don't want them to repent because if they repent, it means you should too. Because really, they're better than you. And if they're going to repent with what they've done in their life, what does that mean? For you? Don't do it. You don't need to do it. And whatever the reason is, beware. Be very careful. God takes this very seriously. The Bible tells us 
that it's this man who was seeking to dissuade the king from repentance and seeking to push them back from seeking mercy from God. It was this man that it repeats twice, is trampled in the gates. Do not dissuade a person from repenting and turning to God for his salvation. Here's the second lesson by this man, and we'll just end here. Once a person turns to God, do not stand in the way of those rushing out to feast at the end of a famine. I think this can happen in churches. A person comes out of the bondage of their sin and they're wonderfully saved and they're excited and they're enthusiastic. They see God's truth and God's wonderful expressions and provisions and everything they see and they're just exuding with enthusiasm and some old goats in the church find that they're just not being orderly enough and they're just a little bit too enthusiastic and it's somewhat uh, disorderly and embarrassing and they try to kind of put that, tamp that down a little bit. Let's not go crazy here. Let's not be careful. Be careful that for your, because you have become hardened to the way of God and the Spirit of God in your life. And you have yourself got used to a poor diet, a malnourished diet because you've lost your appetite for the things of God or you've never had them and you're just rolling along with the culture of the church. Be careful. Be careful in your attitude or your spirit that you don't stand in the way of people who are in a rush to feast after they've been in a famine. In fact, what you ought to do is go along with them. It might be wise for you to um, follow them down to the altar. And remember where it was that you said yes to God before in your own life. And get alongside of them and with them and with their tears say yes to Well, join us in our next broadcast. Until then, we thank you for joining us at the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.